Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. Today is Tuesday, January 10th, 2023. Our guest for this episode is Taras Kuzio, who is Professor of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mohyla Academy in Kiev, Ukraine. And this episode is produced for The Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper that's been published in English in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Welcome, Professor Kuzio. How are you? I'm very well. Um, trying to deal with, as always, two Christmases, and then we still have a New Year's coming up this weekend. So um, probably, like many of us, we'll be going on a crash diet from next week. Definitely, definitely. So before we start to talk about Ukraine and NATO, uh, can we get some educational and professional background about you? Yeah, I, I mean, I was born in Britain of a mixed Ukrainian father, Italian mother background, which is extremely common in Britain. Um, it just so happened that after World War II, you had a large influx of Ukrainian men from the from military formations and from from slave labor in Germany, um, but very few Ukrainian women. So they tended to marry other um, immigrants. And because they were West Ukrainian, most of those were Catholic women. So a lot of Italians, um, some Irish, some Austrian. But in my hometown, it was a huge number of Italian-Ukrainian uh, combinations. Um, so I did all of my university degrees are British, um, starting from University of Sussex, University of London, and then PhD. University of Birmingham in the 1980s to fund my way through my MA. I uh, worked for this uh, New York, then New York based Ukrainian American organization called Prologue Research Corporation. I don't think it's a secret to say that this was funded by the US government from the early 1950s. And um, I was a smuggler. In the late, by the late 80s, we smuggled fax machines, small small Xerox machines, videos, tapes, books, journals into Soviet Ukraine, sometimes with the help of our Polish friends, because the Poland then had a big anti-communist uh, underground. Um, and then from the 90s, I um, began publishing, writing and publishing. So my first book came out in 1994 called Ukraine, Perestroika to Independence. That was with Andrew Wilson. And then a second edition came out in uh, the year 2000. Um, and since then, I've published, um, sort of, I've had two hats, academic and journalist. Um, the academic has, has meant I've published over 100 academic articles in, in academic journals on Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine, Russia, uh, democratization, the orange and euro revolutions, and of course, my favorite topic is always national identity and nationalism and books wise edited and authored and co-authored uh probably about 20 23 um books since uh 1994 so as for um media articles these have been pretty much usually in um in like specialist publications like Eurasia Daily Monitor or News to Europe uh, dealing with with the region 
um, the former communist um, or Soviet empire region. And, um, and those have been uh, very many. In more recent times, particularly, um, I usually write at least one a month for the Atlantic Council of the US based in Washington as well. Um, my three last books, um, the first one came out three weeks before the invasion of Ukraine called Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. This one, an award, um, it was an award given by the Peterson Liter Literary Fund for the best book of, um, of 2022. Um, I mean, the timing was, was fantastic because the book was about why um, Russian nationalism had come to deny the existence of Ukrainian Ukrainians. And of course, therefore, it's very relevant uh, for the invasion and for the war. I have a book coming out with Ibidem, which is a German publisher and in cooperation with Columbia University Press. And that's coming out in a few in a month or so's time. And that's called Genocide and Fascism, Russia's War Against Ukrainians. Professor, what is your current assessment of the war in Ukraine? And how long do you think it might last? Well, you know, this is a question which is a natural question to ask, and of course, a very difficult question. Um, I think the way to understand it is that Ukraine and most of Ukraine's Western allies would like the war to end as quickly as possible. Uh, whereas Russia believes that the longer it drags its war out, the more likelihood there is that Russia will succeed in its objectives. Um, because it believes the longer the war is dragged out, the more Russia will be able to prevail with its bigger pool of manpower. I mean, Russia doesn't give a damn about um, uh, casualties, so its troops are literally cannon fodder. But also uh, the Kremlin believes that the longer it's dragged out, the more likelihood there is that um, there will be cracks appearing in the Western alliance uh, with Ukraine, and that um, some Western countries will start saying to Ukraine, I think it's time you begin negotiating. Um, and that's what Putin wants. Putin wants to negotiate a kind of um, a deal whereby he, he maintains control over, over all or some of the occupied territories that he's taken since February. Um, and then, of course, he'll use the period of time, the, the period of time of no war to again rebuild his army and then say in three, four, five years time, he'll invade again and try to take the whole country. Thankfully, Ukraine's leaders, and, and including Zelensky, are no longer as naive as they were about Russian intentions and therefore they understand this is what Russia's trying to do. And I think many Western countries similarly. So really the that's the sort of the way that both sides look at it. Now, the problem with the Western side of this argument is that um, although they would like the war to end as quickly as, as it can, just like Ukraine would like it to end for obvious reasons, because then there would be less damage, there would be fewer civilian casualties, but um, the West isn't really acting on it to a great extent. I mean, if the West really was sincere in its desire to end the war as quickly as possible, it would it would be not fudging the sending of different types of weapons to Ukraine. And, and you know, Zelensky wouldn't have to be pulling it from from the teeth of Biden or um, 
or British or French and German leaders. I mean, you know, the West has been debating, should we or should we not send jets? Should we or should we not send tanks? And should we not send missiles that can, you know, strike inside Russian territory? Nobody nobody can explain to any experts like me why it's not escalatory to send infantry fighting vehicles, which are kind of vehicles which are higher up than armored personnel carriers, but not as high as tanks um, in terms of their size. So sending those is not escalatory. And France, Germany, and uh, Canada, and the US are just sending those now. But it is escalatory to send tanks. There's simply no rhyme or reason here. And if the West put its money where its mouth was and sent everything that Ukraine requests, that includes tanks, more high-precision weaponry, more long-range missiles, the war would be over a lot quicker. So I think there's a, there's a gap between Western rhetoric in support of Ukraine finishing the war quickly and actually not sending the, the right equipment to do that. Because what we have in, in the war is, in effect, one side, the Ukraine side, using high morale, of its troops, strong vertical, sorry, horizontal bonds between Ukrainian civil society, volunteer groups, and the Ukrainian military, and Western military technology, that's on one side. On the other side, you've got outdated Soviet military equipment, and you've just got uh, conscripts who are cannon fodder, and all Russia the way Russia is trying to win the war is simply by throwing meat, as they call this cannon fodder, at Ukrainian troops. They're using, they're just walking into into fire. Russian soldiers are walking over the bodies of their colleagues, of their comrades who have been killed and walking towards Ukrainian lines. So which side will prevail? This mass of humanity, which has been used as cannon fodder without any modern military equipment or the Ukrainian side. And the Ukrainian side should be able to win even with the equipment that's being sent because even the stuff the West is sending now is still better than anything the Russians have got. But at the same time, if the West was to send everything that Ukraine asked for, including especially tanks, then the war would be over very quickly. Um, I, I, I think that um, most people will say that the Ukraine is, is in the driving seat. It's already thrown the Russians out of Kiev, out of Kharkiv, and out of Kherson. But uh, there's, there's a lot more tough fighting to go ahead, particularly in the Donbass and, and South Zaporizhia region. And what about NATO? What do you think is the major obstacle for Ukraine to join NATO? And do you think that situation will change at all this year? The obstacles that NATO put forward as saying why Ukraine could not join, have all evaporated. So now NATO has no excuse, really, to say that Ukraine cannot join. And there are two, two answers, two parts to this, to this answer, as it were. Firstly, the obstacles that NATO used to talk about were issues such as low public support, in, particularly in eastern Ukraine. That's all gone. Eastern, because of Russia's military genocide and aggression, Eastern Ukrainians support NATO membership and EU membership at the same levels as people in Kiev or even West Ukraine. 
So that's all gone. So there's public support um, for NATO membership throughout the country. And if there was a referendum, it would get between 70 and 80% support. Secondly, the other question is, uh, the other claim was always that, well, Ukraine military is not really, you know, integrated into NATO structure, hasn't, hasn't got NATO-style training. That's all gone as well. Ukraine's army has been training according to NATO standards since 2014 and has been increasingly using NATO military equipment. So Ukraine is de facto already a NATO army. Um, the third um, argument that was used as well was things like, well, Ukraine's too poor, it can't afford the high level of military defense. Again, that's not true. Ukraine spends anything, well, even before the invasion, was spending up to 5% of GDP on defense. That's higher than most NATO members. NATO in 2006 asked all its members to spend 2% of GDP at a minimum on defense. As of today, only about 10 out of 30 members do. So Ukraine is, is the same as those 10, 10, not the 20 who don't spend 2%. Um, the final reason why it was said we can't invite Ukraine in is because um, this would lead to a very negative re Russian reaction. Well, obviously that is completely irrelevant today because Russia's invaded Ukraine. So the idea that Russia would get more angry if Ukraine was, in, was invited into NATO is a ridiculous argument to use today. Now, the, the final reason that's used is always that, well, NATO doesn't invite in countries which, which have conflicts on their territory. Um, now, you know, the rules have always been flexible here. West Germany was invited to join NATO in the early 1950s, despite the fact that East Germany was under Soviet occupation until 1991. So the idea that this is, this is a, you know, a groundbreaking rule, you can't do this, is not true. By the way, Cyprus was invited to join the EU when Northern Cyprus has been occupied by Turkey since 1974. But I think the other part to this answer is more important in some ways. And that is that we have to look ahead. So obviously we're only talking about Ukraine joining NATO after the war is over, so after Ukraine defeats Russia. And then you have a scenario, a situation, what does the West do for that region? Because once Russia loses the war, it will not give up its desire to gobble up Ukraine. Even if Putin goes, that won't change. So what needs to be done is to uh, ensure that there isn't a repetition down the road, say in three, four, five years' time, Russia's rebuilt its armed forces and then again launches an invasion. What you don't want is a repeat, a second invasion and a second crisis, which, which as we know from now, has affected the entire world. I mean, it's not just uh, Europe and the United States. It's infected everywhere. So we don't want to go through this again in five years' time after Russia's been defeated. And the only way to prevent that, there's no other way, is to, to bring Ukraine into NATO. If Ukraine is brought into NATO after Russia's defeated, then Russia will never again invade Ukraine. There will never again be a crisis in Europe or a global crisis, because Russia will be too scared to invade Ukraine. And that would be good for everybody in Europe. I mean, Europe doesn't want to go through this in five years' time again of having to spend a huge amount of money to keep Ukraine afloat, to send weapons, etc. And that would not need to be done if Ukraine was, was brought into NATO. So I think um, there's a need to close this, what was called a grey zone of security 
between NATO and the EU on one hand and the Russian Eurasian Empire on the other. And these countries like Ukraine and Georgia were stuck in the middle. And that just made it tempting for Russia to invade. You need to remove that temptation. And the only way to do that is by bringing Ukraine to NATO. The alternatives to that, which Zelensky has talked about, about some security guarantees, simply won't work. Ukraine obtained security guarantees in 1994, called the Budapest Memorandum, when it gave up its nuclear weapons, which then were the third largest in the world. And those those security guarantees were a complete waste of time and a waste, a scrap of paper. In 2014, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it ignored the Budapest Memorandum. Russia was a signatory. And of course, Obama and David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, also were AWOL at the time, and they didn't do anything. So security guarantees on paper are simply a waste of time, and there's a history that they, they don't mean anything. Professor, unfortunately, we have to stop there. We're out of time. I'd like to thank you for coming on Kreninitsi today and talking about Ukraine and the war and NATO. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's been a very interesting interaction about these very, very difficult, but very, of course, crucially important points. And this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kreninitsi the Well, a podcast series about interesting and notable Ukrainians from around the globe. This episode is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in English for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. And I have been speaking with Professor Taras Kuzio, Professor of Political Science at the National University of Kiev Mohyla Academy in Kiev, Ukraine. Until next time, that's all for now.